Hello and welcome to Civil War Weekly, the podcast that answers the question, what happened this week in the American Civil War? I'm your host, Tim Patrick, and this is episode 130, September 11th to September 17th, 1863. Last week, we covered a couple of different events. We spent some time in Arkansas, concluding the capture of Little Rock. Sabine Pass has held against a potential Union invasion, and it's back to the drawing board toward the capture of the rest of Louisiana and eventually Texas for the Federals. There was additional action at Charleston Harbor, but Gilmore is unable to capture the birthplace of the rebellion. This week we are going to spend the entire episode setting up for the Battle of Chickamauga. This will include the fall of Chattanooga, but first let's just check in and see what's going on following the Tullahoma campaign. Of course, we do have some Patreon content, and this month we did a movie review. We've been talking about these movies in quick succession. We had the movie Gettysburg, then we had Glory, and we had Ride with the Devil this month. So those are already posted, and if you want to hear a synopsis of the movie and a little bit about the historical accuracy of those, then that is on the Patreon, and we're probably going to go back to a memoir review uh, next week. So we'll uh, hear from somebody who served under Custer in the cavalry. We don't have a whole lot of cavalry memoirs, uh, but that's probably going to be on tap for next month here. So if any of that sounds interesting to you, then there is a link to the Patreon, of course, those proceeds do go toward the general upkeep of the show. They are greatly appreciated. It's been a while since we have been in the area. There was a Gettysburg-sized hole in our narrative that caused us to divert, but we are back to the secondary theater of the war. When we last left off, Bragg had lost Middle Tennessee. From Tullahoma, which for the amount of casualties was a major victory for the Union, the rebels would move to Chattanooga. Now Chattanooga sat on the Tennessee River, and while sporting a population of only around 2,500 at the time, the city was important because it was a key railroad hub. In fact, it should be pointed out that we have mentioned Chattanooga before, and if you recall the Great Locomotive Chase, that was the destination for the train robbers, in conjuncture with a Union assault on the city. We should also point out that Don Carlos Buell, when he is in charge of the army before the Perryville campaign, he is knocking on the door on the outskirts of Chattanooga, and that's a primary objective is to capture that city, but obviously with a shift into Kentucky, he's going to be under some pressure politically, of course, to backtrack and stop the Confederates as they invade that state. So he was kind of in a position where he probably could have captured Chattanooga back in 1862, and things would have been pretty different had he done so. Obviously, uh, Perryville and Stones River have happened since then to pretty major battles, uh, especially in this theater of the war. So if he had actually executed, it probably would have been different. In 1863, Rosecrans had been stalled from an immediate pursuit of the enemy because of an area known as the Barrens to his front. 
This was around 20 miles or so of sparsely habited terrain that would make things difficult for his army. During Tomahoma, if you recall, there had been some prodding by the War Department and Abraham Lincoln, so his next campaign would indeed be punctuated with constant check-ins and bickering back and forth. I often point out that Lincoln is admirable for attempting to learn military tactics and procedures, but this is a case where he falls short, maybe because of the victories he had already achieved in July. Rosecrans will read to his chief subordinates an ultimatum from Washington, ordering him into action, which would meet with mostly disapproval, with the exception, of course, of his chief of staff, James Garfield. Although Garfield may have been more interested in the political connotations of being the only general to advocate for an advance. And because you should know who James Garfield is, obviously he becomes president. That makes sense. Rosecrans, though, was not making friends, it should be said. He was pestering the War Department, so much so that when Lovell Rousseau shows up to lobby for an entire mounted division, like the extremely effective Lightning Brigade of Wilder, he is very abruptly shown the door. The commanding general was a pretty solid strategist, so given time he could have come up with something good. We've mentioned this very briefly, I believe, but especially at the time in 1863, even with the victory that Grant has had in the Vicksburg campaign, it's considered that Rosecrans is probably the best general that the army has. And that's also in conjunction with Meade and having his success at Gettysburg. He falls short. Uh, and we talked about that for a variety of reasons after the battle, but it's kind of considered that Rosecrans is probably the best general that the Union army has. And if he's able to come up with another success, he might have been in a place that Grant eventually finds himself in in commanding all the armies of the Union, kind of like George B. McClellan. Good general morale and a sense that the war may be coming to an end sooner rather than later was key. Bragg, for his part, wished he had morale on his side of the field. In a personal sense, the North Carolinian was ill, sinking treatment and recovery from the stresses of his position. We can safely assume that things are not going well for the Army of Tennessee. It is not without its flashes, but generally morale is low and there are desertions. Especially amongst Tennessee troops who they have just been pushed out of their home state, there's going to be a lot of desertions from them. And we may have talked about them when we talked about Sam R. Watkins and his Memoir, Company H, mentions how there's just general lack of morale in the army, especially amongst those Tennessee troops. In the officer corps, things have greatly deteriorated. Bragg has a nasty habit of blaming his subordinates, which will lead for them to demand all their orders in writing. Joseph Johnson could have removed the embattled general from his position, but he did not, most likely not wanting for himself to be the replacement. And as a result, even after the disastrous Tullahoma campaign, the Confederate Army would proceed with Bragg at the helm. We talked about the result of this campaign, complete with a near mutiny at Elk River by Hardy. Hardy is actually going to be shown the door as a result being shipped off to Mississippi. Now he will be back, but he will not be participating in the campaign or the Battle of Chickamauga. But what exactly the plan should be 
is up in the air. There is an idea to shift forces to Johnston or shift forces to Bragg. The logic was that they needed to outgun the Union Army somewhere. A concentration and a quick defeat could start to turn the momentum. Bragg had traded some troops away to help build up the relief army at Jackson that did very little in terms of relieving. He would get those troops back shortly. Rosecrans, in the meantime, is going to have several options on the table. He will focus on building up the railroad and supply first. Lincoln had made a key point to save East Tennessee. With Rosecrans where he was threatening Chattanooga and Burnside rebelling down to deal with Buckner at Knoxville, his long-awaited promise to the people of the region seemed to be coming to fruition. On the ground, however, the supply issues were leading to Union troops drawing heavily from the country, which, as you can imagine, was not going to win over hearts and minds. Making sure supplies could be brought in by railroad would be a priority. In contrast, Bragg will not even be able to take advantage of the supply bases in Atlanta, because those would be marked for Lee's army, showing that the supply issues the South faces are pretty dire. While Bragg attempted to keep his army fed and Rosecrans grabbed rolling stock, Stanton and Halleck were impatient. Eventually, this will lead to a request for daily reports from the Army of the Cumberland, and somewhere in there, the Ohio general would offer to resign. After that was deemed not necessary, Rosecrans would roll out three options to get at Chattanooga. Now the city is dominated by mountains, which would make for some tough going. Directly across was Waldron's Ridge. The Union troops could move over this high ground and make a direct assault on the Southerners on the other side of the Tennessee River. This, though, would be something kind of like Fredericksburg, so it was easily the third option. That left upstream or downstream. Upstream had the advantage of being close to Burnside, who was getting his Ninth Corps back because of their trip to Vicksburg. Acting in concert could be an intriguing opportunity. It was also the more likely choice assumed by the Southern Army. But if a feint were to happen, then that could leave downstream options open, and the Army of the Cumberland could stealthily move across Sound Mountain and Lookout Mountain. Bridgeport and Stevenson in Alabama were made to be supply depots. Additionally, troops could cross near the Sequatchie River and make a more direct attack on the Confederates. As part of this plan, McCook and his corps would move across Caperton's Ferry, their objective being Valley Head, which on a map is significantly south of Chattanooga. Thomas and his command would cross at Bridgeport and move on Trenton, Georgia. Crittenden and his corps would then move across at the Sequatchie River, as we already mentioned. If they played their cards right, Sand Mountain and Raccoon Mountain would screen the movements of the troops. Waldron's Ridge would likewise shield the moves of the Union troops, which leads to the question as to why the Confederates abandoned it in the first place. But there were problems with supply to this area, so it was deemed better to be on the far side of the river. Hazen's brigade, along with Wagner's and Wilder's, would remain to harass the city. Wilder would even have his command lob shells into the town itself, although this did very little damage. Hazen would march his men around to confuse the enemy. 
In the meantime, they would make noises as if they were building boats, actually completing some of the process. All of this was designed to fool Bragg and the Confederates. Speaking of Bragg, he's going to look for reinforcements to arrive and shore up his army. Johnson was moving men from his sector, and there would be talks to get some of Lee's as well. Longstreet, as we have discussed previously, was a Western Bloc supporter, so eventually it would be his corps which would be on the way. 16 different rail lines and 600 miles separated them, though. Walker's men would arrive, as would Breckinridge, even though Bragg had tried to get rid of the Kentucky general. Buckner, who also did not like Bragg, not that that's necessarily a unique trait amongst these Kentuckians, would in the meantime resolve to abandon Knoxville. His men would then fall under the control of Bragg's army, giving him some more support. The problem Bragg is going to have, though, is that his cavalry will let him down during the campaign. Joseph Wheeler had been assigned to watch the flank, much as he had been doing before Tullahoma. He left only a small amount of men to watch in the area around Bridgeport, concentrating the rest of his cavalry elsewhere. In fact, two regiments were tasked with the entire flank, and crucial sectors in which the landings would take place were only watched by the 3rd Confederate Cavalry. Meanwhile, Forrest, to his credit, on the other sector, did actually send a command under Debrell to the far side of the river, but this cavalry had been driven away by their Federal counterparts. In the meantime, the rebels being joined by guerrillas. There is a real opportunity that while the pieces are being set on the board, then Bragg could take advantage of a relatively stranded Crittenden, but he does not have the right intelligence to support this. Attentions were completely shifted in the other direction, as the bombardments on the city rightly had the citizens worried and also drew in the available infantry pickets. August 29th actually sees things go into motion. With reinforcements still gathering and his attention shifted upriver, it was likely Bragg would have to retreat yet again. Wilder's shelling of the city had actually thrown this idea out there, Bragg seeing the area as untenable if faced with rifled pieces from the Army of the Cumberland. So, we can see that even though Wilder doesn't really do a whole lot of damage, it is pretty significant that he starts lobbing these shells, and actually probably could have made things pretty different if Bragg had been more decisive in pulling his army back. Wheeler's failure is fully shown when a citizen is the first to alert Bragg that enemy is coming. Bragg would have to frame his movement as a withdrawal rather than a retreat. Morale, as mentioned, was low, and there would be desertions as a result. By September 8th, only cavalry remained in the city and Lookout Mountain. Union cavalry had made contact with some rebels at Sand Mountain, but otherwise their progress was not hindered. Crucially, during this operation, Crennenton would get into a kerfuffle with Division Commander Sam Wood. Wood was cautious about moving into Lookout Valley, thinking it could be a good place for the Confederates to set up a trap. Rosecrans would rebuke him as a result. There was no trap as Bragg had moved his men south of Chickamauga Creek, some of them taking up positions on Pigeon Mountain, 
which was the next high ground. Wilder's men rushed into the city and would plant a Union flag, Chattanooga having fallen with even less in terms of casualties than Tullahoma. Now, because of the success, Rosecrans was at an all-time high. His plan had worked, and now all that remained was the destruction of Bragg with a vigorous pursuit. McCook, Crennington, and Thomas would be on the prowl with the reserve corps of Gordon Granger securing the hard-won gains. Now is a good time to take a pause and talk about the makeup of both armies. For the Army of the Cumberland, it's pretty much the same setup that we've had for quite a while. Rosecrans, it should be said, had too much faith sometimes in his commanders. McCook and Crennington were two men who had not turned in stellar performances in the past few engagements, but they stood at the heads of their respective corps. We will start with George Thomas and the 14th Corps. His divisions were commanded by Absalom Baird, James Negley, John Brannan, and Joseph Reynolds. Baird was a Pennsylvania native and a career soldier who will eventually receive the Medal of Honor and become the Inspector General of the U.S. Army. Negley we have met before, the famous horticulturist having done good service at Stones River. Brannan was a complicated commander, a scandal involving his wife who left him and went to Europe being well-known gossip. He had seen action in Mexico and in the Seminole War. During the Civil War, he had led an expedition at Jacksonville. He will serve in the Atlanta Campaign and continue in the Army after the war. Reynolds, of course, we have met before, having fought against Lee back at Cheat Mountain. It's all the way back in 1861, if you remember that. Baird's brigade commanders were Benjamin Scribner, John Starkweather, and John King, commanding a brigade of regulars. Scribner was a druggist before the war who had served as a volunteer in the Mexican-American conflict. He will go on to be a treasury agent in Alaska. Starkweather we met all the way back at Perryville. King was a career soldier, having risen up the ranks. Starkweather has the 24th Illinois, an ethnically mixed regiment in his command with many European soldiers. Negley's brigade commanders were John Beatty, Timothy Stanley, and William Surwell. Beatty we have met before, the presidential elector having served back in the Perryville campaign. Stanley was a colonel of the 18th Ohio prior to his elevation to brigade command. Surwell was from Pennsylvania, serving out the war and then returning to the Pittsburgh area to become a postmaster and justice of the peace. Stanley has the 19th Illinois in his command, which included companies made up of Ellsworth Zwaves. Brandon's brigade commanders were John Connell, John Croxton, and Ferdinand Vanderveer. Vanderveer's brigade included the hard-fighting 9th Ohio and 2nd Minnesota. Croxton was a Kentucky native and Yale graduate who would serve in the Grant administration after the war. Connell was new to brigade command and would be watched by his commander. Vanderveer was an Ohio native having served as a volunteer in Mexico. He will return to Ohio becoming a judge after the war. Reynolds technically has John Wilder, although both of those officers did not get along and Wilder was detached mostly. 
Edward King and John Turchin were his other commanders. Edward King had been elevated from regimental command, having been the colonel of the 68th Indiana. Turchin was an interesting figure, having served in the Russian Imperial Army. Hated by many, he had been cashiered from the army for his brutal actions in the burning of Athens, Alabama. This action actually got him on the hit list with the Confederacy, much like Butler and Milroy. It would be Abraham Lincoln, though, who would step in and reinstate the Russian aristocrat, who always traveled with his wife, even on campaign, something else that did not earn him very many fans. He had failed to sparkle as a cavalry officer, so he was traded for George Crook. McCook's 20th Corps had divisions under Jefferson C. Davis, Richard Johnson, and Phil Sheridan, all of whom we should be familiar with as they have been featured in our previous actions. Davis had Sidney Post, William Carlin, and Hans Haig, with his Scandinavian 15th Wisconsin as brigade commanders. We have talked previously about Carlin and Haig, but perhaps did not cover Sidney Post in our previous episodes. Post was a lawyer in Illinois and Kansas before the war, and he will receive the Medal of Honor for his action at the Battle of Nashville. After the war, he will serve in Congress for Illinois. Amongst Post regiments is the 22nd Indiana, who you remember was victimized at the slaughter pen at Perryville. Johnson will have Joseph Dodge, communist revolutionary and previously featured August Villick, with his Horn Brigade, due to their commands they received in that medium, and Philemon Baldwin as brigade commanders. Baldwin was a native of Indiana, where he ran a farm implement business before the war. Sheridan has William Lytle, Bernald Leibolt, and Luther Pretense Bradley. Some of these men have been seeing action since Pea Ridge, so they are veterans at this point. Lytle we have met before, writing a famous poem before the conflict. Leibolt was the son of German immigrants, serving as a volunteer during the Mexican-American War and going on to be the police commissioner of St. Louis. Prentice Bradley was from Illinois, being in the book business before the war. Leibolt has the 73rd Illinois, also known as the Preacher's Regiment, due to the large amount of preachers in their ranks. Crennington and his 21st Corps will have Thomas Wood, John Palmer, and Horatio Van Cleve as division commanders, all of whom we have introduced before. Wood has George Buell, George Wagner, and Charles Harker as brigade commanders. Buell is the cousin of Don Carlos, having served as an engineer and gold miner before the war. Wagner was a member of the House of Representatives in Indiana and will go on to be president of the Agricultural Society for that state. Harker was a New Jersey native and 1858 class of West Point grad. Palmer will have familiar faces in William Babcock Hazen, Charles Cruff, and William Groves. Van Cleve will have Samuel Beatty, George Dick, and Sidney Barnes. Samuel Beatty we have met before, having served at Perryville. George Dick had already seen action during the war and would become a postmaster in Illinois after the conflict. 
Barnes was a lawyer and politician prior to the war, and afterward he would serve as U.S. Attorney General in New Mexico. Barnes has in his command the 35th Indiana, made mostly of Irish immigrants. We only need to worry about a few brigades in Gordon Granger's Reserve Corps, but we should also introduce Granger, as I believe we have not just as yet. In 1863, Granger will not be liked by his fellow officers or men for that matter. In this campaign, he will arrest several accused of foraging without orders until he had a little prison outside of his headquarters. His first division will be commanded by James Steedman, with brigades under Walter Whitaker and John Mitchell. Steedman we have met before, the Ohio native having served already in several battles. Walter Whitaker was a lawyer and state legislator prior to the war. He would return to law and actually spend time in a mental asylum after the conflict. Mitchell was also a lawyer and would serve throughout the war. Afterwards, he will marry the niece of Rutherford B. Hayes, who would be his friend for the remainder of his life. Dan McCook commands an additional brigade, who will come into our story as well, but you know McCook from Perryville. Cavalry would be commanded initially by Stanley, although he would fall ill, leaving the job to Robert Mitchell. Mitchell will have George Crook and Edward McCook as brigade commanders. Crook was a West Pointer who has already seen action in the East as part of our story. He will go on to campaign against native tribes, most notably the Apache after the conclusion of the Civil War. McCook was yet another McCook who participated in the Pikes Peak Gold Rush before the war and afterwards served in the government. In all, William Rosecrans would have in his three corps and cavalry around 60,000 combatants. Braxton Bragg had made some changes and will actually continue to make changes as we proceed. We will only talk about the makeup leading up to the first day of Chickamauga. It includes some familiar faces, but just a little mixed up. Leonidas Polk would command his first corps, with D.H. Hill taking over for the absent Hardee, with another corps being added in there under Simon Bolvar Buckner. William H.T. Walker, or Shot Pouch Walker, named as such because of his unlucky habit of attracting enemy lead, would take on the Reserve Corps, while Longstreet will add in his Northern Virginia troops. With these eastern additions, Bushrod Johnson would command a provisional corps under First Hood, then Longstreet, when he arrived on the field. Polk will have divisions under Frank Cheatham and Thomas Heinemann, Heinemann being recently inserted for the ailing John Withers. Cheatham's brigades would include John King Jackson, Preston Smith, George Manny, Arthur Strahl, and Marcus Wright. John King Jackson has recently arrived, and we've talked about him previously. Preston Smith and George Manny we have mentioned as well. Marcus Wright was a lawyer and writer before the war. Straw was also a lawyer whose grandfather had immigrated from Germany. With the exception of a handful of regiments, Cheatham will have mostly Tennessee troops who were fiercely loyal to their commander, despite his sometimes drunken failings on the battlefield. We're going to see after the battle that Bragg is going to attempt to shake up the army yet again, 
and he's going to remove Cheatham from command of these troops as part of a anti-going-against-Brad-Cabal kind of thing. And this is not going to be received well by troops who already had low morale, who were already irritated at the fact that their home state had been abandoned. So that is not going to be good for Braxton Bragg. Heinemann will have brigades under Patton Anderson, Zach Dees, and Arthur Manigault. Anderson and Manigault we have talked about before, but not Dees. Dees was a cotton broker from Alabama, having already served as an aide to Joseph Johnson. He will go back into this trade after the war. Hill will have divisions under the competent Patrick Claiborne and John Breckenridge. Claiborne has brigades commanded by Sterling Wood, Lucius Polk, and James Deschler. We have talked about all of these officers before, including Deschler, who you may recall from Arkansas Post. Breckenridge's brigade leaders we have discussed prior as well, them being Helm with the famous Orthon Brigade, Daniel Adams with his mostly Louisiana regiments, and Marcel Stovall with his Florida, Georgia, North Carolina regiment mix. Buckner would have divisions under A.P. Stewart and William Preston. Stewart will have William Bate, John C. Brown, and Henry DeLamar Clayton Sr. Bate was a steamboat clerk and Mexican War volunteer before the Civil War. He will become the governor of Tennessee later in life. Brown would also be a governor of Tennessee after the war, but not before serving throughout the Atlanta and Carolina campaigns. Clayton was a politician and lawyer before the war from Alabama. He will serve throughout, resigning shortly before the end, returning to his home state. Preston will have a mixed bag of Alabama, Kentucky, Florida, North Carolina, and Virginia troops under Archibald Gracie, John Kelly, and Robert Trigg. Gracie was a West Pointer, actually born in New York, but had ties to Alabama. He will serve until his death at Petersburg. His child, Archibald Gracie IV, would survive the sinking of the Titanic. Trigg was a VMI grad who would become a cattle broker and lawyer in Virginia after the war. Kelly had already served since Shiloh, rising to the rank of colonel, even though he was only 23. He will go on to become a general, and while still at that age, fall at Franklin in 1864. Walker's reserves would include his own division and another commanded by St. John Little. Little is all set for reassignment, no longer wishing to serve under Bragg, but has been convinced to stay for the campaign. Walker has Matthew Ector and Claudius Wilson. Ector rose through the ranks, starting the war as a private. Wilson was a Georgian who practiced law in Savannah before the war. He will go on to unfortunately die of illness later in the year. Little has Daniel Govan and Edward Walthall. Govan was a farmer who had participated in the gold rush before the war. Once completed, he will go back to farming afterward. Walthall was born in Richmond but practiced law in Mississippi. He will go on to be the governor of that state after the war. 
Bushrod Johnson and his provisional division will have John S. Fulton, John Gregg, and Evander McNair. Gregg and McNair we've met before. Fulton was a lawyer who will serve until his death at Petersburg later in the war. When Longstreet arrives on the battlefield, it should be noted he only contributes around 6,700 men. Hood's division, commanded by law for a time, will have Robertson and the Texans, Law's own Alabama Brigade, and Rock Benning's Georgians. Joseph Kershaw and his South Carolinians, as well as Benjamin Humphrey and the Mississippi Brigade, formerly of Barksdale, would also arrive. Cavalry was divided into two corps, one under Wheeler and the other under Forrest. Wheeler's cavalry especially still has a reputation for disorderly conduct. John Wharton and William Martin, a former member of Stewart's cavalry, commanded under Wheeler, while Frank Armstrong takes Forrest Division, and John Pegram adds a second under the aggressive cavalry commander. Wheeler, though, will not take well to corps command in a traditional army system, as we will soon see. In all, Braxton Bragg, with his reinforcements, would be able to bring 65,000 men to the field in September. If you've been keeping score here for some of these battles, and if you had been hopefully paying attention earlier in the episode, you'll notice that Rosecrans only has 60,000 men compared to now Braxton Bragg's army at 65,000 men. It's one thing when you're going up against him at Stones River, where Braxton Bragg has Less in terms of troops, even though he's still going to be aggressive in that battle. But now he has more men than you. There's more parity here. And it's a very rare instance where the Confederacy is actually outnumbering the Union in a battle, and especially this major of a battle of Chickamauga. The Army of the Cumberland's next move would be an attempt to take the town of Lafayette, Georgia. From there, a combination of the Army could be had. The various corps would move forward, Thomas urging for more caution in the advance. It would be his division under James Negley who would roll off of Lookout Mountain and into a place called Macklemore's Cove. The cove sat before Pigeon Mountain, which was occupied by the Confederates as we know. Joe Wheeler and his cavalry were further south checking on McCook, while infantry in D.H. Hill's corps would man the passes across from Thomas. Bragg would see a golden opportunity here. He could defeat the corps in detail if he acted quickly, as they were all strung out. The destruction could start with Negley, who was supported additionally by Alsville on Beard. If this part of the corps was dealt with, it would collapse the center, opening for more opportunities. Bragg devised that while Hill held the Yankees in place, Thomas Hyman could flank and cut off the retreat annihilating the enemy. Hyman, though, was slow to act and cautious. Hill would be the same, the Confederates just as wary as their enemy. Nagley, for his part, sniffed out potential trouble and withdrew. Despite orders directly from the army commander, Hyman and Hill would not engage the enemy on September 11th, but rather there would be light skirmishing. Hill would give a laundry list of excuses, and Hyman would be marked for future removal by Bragg, who is going to have to try to come up with a different way to spring a trap. I've seen in some places that this criticism of Hyman and Hill is, is warranted because they did not follow orders. However, 
the actual destruction of a large force in the Civil War is often a very elusive goal and does not happen very often, if at all. So the idea that they're going to destroy Negley is kind of far-fetched, at least. Uh, so there is at least something to be said of that. Rosecrans would realize that he was in a tough spot, calling for his commands to scatter no more and concentrate. Wilder and his Lightning Brigade had moved as far south as Ringgold, Georgia, where they would skirmish with Forrest Cavalry. Palmer's division would also run into Pegram's Cavalry on September 10th, resulting in the capture of some 58 men from the 1st Kentucky. It was plain from these actions that there was a greater concentration of rebels than had been previously anticipated. Crennenton would be isolated, with Thomas moving to his aid. McCook had to cross back into the mountainous terrain as the direct route would take him facing Pigeon Mountain, his column vulnerable to beginning hit in the flank. A mansion in Catoosa County, Georgia, the Lee Gordon Mansion, would be the rally point. Bragg would order Polk to attack Crennenton, which initially would prove unwise, but given Buckner's men as reinforcement, could have been a viable attack plan. Bishop Polk, who did not want to do Bragg any favors, would fail yet again. Crennenton, for his part, did not believe the intimate danger to his front. Only Wilder and a small amount of cavalry would watch the crucial crossings of the River of Death. Having failed once, Bragg was undeterred. He could still salvage the situation and wedge himself between his enemy and Chattanooga. The Army of the Cumberland, meanwhile, had received intelligence that Longstreet was arriving, as were additional troops sent from Johnson. Bragg would have numbers to go toe-to-toe -to -toe with his enemy soon. His foe sat across Chickamauga Creek, so it would be necessary to use crossings and fords. He would outline the following a plan of attack. 1. Bushrod Johnson, his command later taken over by Hood, when he arrived, would cross at Reed's Bridge and sweep toward Lee's and Gordon's Mills. 2. Walker with his reserves would cross at Alexander's Bridge and find the enemy flank and rear. 3. Buckner would cross at Thedford's Ford and push the enemy in Polk's front. 4. Polk would push from front toward Lee and Gordon's Mill. 5. Hill will press from the left flank and probe the enemy cavalry. 6. Wheeler will hold the Pigeon Mountain Passes. With those actions in mind, we will call it a day for now and pick up the fight next week as we open the Battle of Chickamauga. Today we have been busy covering the time from the end of the Tullahoma Campaign through the fall of Chattanooga and now to the banks of Chickamauga Creek. Next week we will start the fight for the second largest battle of the war, covering that event in detail. If you like what you hear, please make sure to leave a review. Posted in the description should be a link to the website as well as Patreon and Venmo information. Support for the general upkeep of the show is greatly appreciated. Feedback is always welcome. Questions, comments, concerns. The email is cwweeklypod at gmail.com. Thank you all so much for listening and have a great week.